Welcome to the Crossing Church Podcast. This week we continue our Undone series with a message titled, Less Hurting, More Healing. Here's our weekend message with Pastor Stephen Robles. Can you keep that applause going as we welcome our South Shore campus with Pastor Hector Rivera, our Plant City campus with Pastor Michael, and everyone watching online, so many on, across the world. And we're so glad you're here at our Tampa campus as well. Well, as always, it's an honor and privilege to stand here and teach the Word, and I want to thank our lead pastors, Pastor Greg and Pastor Tamara, for allowing me to do this, and for all they do here at the church, Pastor Greg will be back next week giving the Word, and so would you show them your appreciation, Pastor Greg, Pastor Tamara, we love you guys, look forward to seeing you next week. You know, as Pastor Jeremy was saying, baptism blowout is next week, and if you've never been to one, well, let me ask this. Who has been to a baptism blowout? Has been there? Raise your hand. It's an awesome, awesome event. So if you've not been one, I encourage you to go. It's at all three campuses this year for the first time, so it's just an awesome event. I encourage you to check out. I'll be, be able, I'm able to baptize someone in my life group this year, which is just awesome. So again, encourage you, encourage you to come out. So we're in a series titled Undone. And if you recognize that arrow, how many of you appreciate that undone command or the undo command when you're working on your computer, right? You make that mistake and you hit that command Z to undo that mistake. And so we're talking about some things that need to be undone in our lives and in our culture. And last week, Pastor Greg talked about how we need less hate and more love in our lives and in our world today. And so today, I felt the Lord saying to address this idea that we need less hurting and more healing. We need less hurting and more healing, individually, corporately, and even as a nation. You know, individuals are hurting today more than ever. A recent study by the CDC just a couple months ago, it revealed that percentage of adults with symptoms of anxiety or depression increased year over year, 36% to 41%. We are approaching almost half of adults in America dealing with anxiety and depression. The largest increase is among ages 18 to 29. In addition, families are hurting. Whether it's a broken family situation or there's a physical need, a financial need, maybe a child is wandering away, families are hurting. And so we need healing within our families. And also our country is hurting. Our policies are divided. The rise of atheism and progressive Christianity, our inability to have civil discourse and to be able to talk about truth in the public square. We need to be able to heal as a country, and it boils all the way back down to individuals. And so if, you have, if you're taking notes today, and I encourage you to do, we're going to be covering some things. The title for today's message is this, How Do We Heal? How Do We Heal? And as I talk today, I'm going to pray for something bold for all of you. In each of our lives, there's someone that God needs us to engage with, someone who is hurting. Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a coworker. But I believe that God has someone that he wants you to help in their healing process. I'm going to pray that as I talk today, God reveals that person to you, and then that you have the courage to help them through whatever they're going through. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your presence is in this place. You are mighty, you are worthy, and we worship you. And now, God, we pray that you speak today at all of our campuses and online. I pray I get out of the way and we hear from you and you reveal to us who we can help and show Christ's love. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) Amen. So before we learn how we heal, 
we have to understand why do we hurt others? Why is it so natural, it seems, just, seems to happen that we just hurt others all the time and people hurt us? This is actually a unique place where science and the Bible agree. And I'll hit the science first. There was a study by Duke University a couple years ago, and they came up with something known as the party effect. If you're in a group of people, maybe you're at a party, and you hear your name called, what do you do immediately? Oh, one second. And you look for where your name was called. Or if you're shown a photograph and you know you're in that photograph, where do your eyes immediately go to? You, right? And so the science understands that our minds automatically pull our attention to our names and our own faces in photographs. And then a recent study published by Psychological Science, I'm going to read the study. Now, don't get mad at me. This is the study talking, okay? I'm reading verbatim. The study says that more affluence or more money leads to a greater sense of self-reliance and detachment from others. Social media, while it may connect us to others, actually leads to a greater self-centeredness as people strive to make their presence known. Much of social media is all about me. Overly doting helicopter parents, don't get mad at me, it's the study talking, may also be creating greater narcissism in children. Finally, society, with its emphasis on celebrity, appearance, and narcissistic role models and leaders, may be playing a part in the rise in self-centeredness. And you probably see this all over. If you go on social media, if you listen to culture, what do they say about your feelings? Culture says, trust your feelings. Your feelings aren't wrong. Your feelings can point you in the right direction. Your feelings are what makes things right and things wrong. Every voice in our culture and society is saying, think about you. And it is pointing to a self-centered culture. Pastor taught on this verse last week, and it describes what I'm talking about. James 4, 1 through 2 says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? What makes you hurt each other? They come from your desires that battle within you. You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And then even Jesus confirmed this when he was speaking in Mark chapter 7, verse 20. Jesus says, it's what comes out of a person that defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts come evil thoughts, immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, promiscuity, stinginess, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. That's a long list. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. So science and scripture agree that we are naturally self-centered and narcissistic. And if we don't consciously override our self-centeredness, we're going to naturally hurt people around us. We have to make a conscious effort to fight those natural inclinations to self-centeredness and narcissism. So I have three kids, and my two oldest are boys. They are 8 and 11 right now. <clears throat> and I'm so proud of them. They do an incredible job in school and in extracurricular activities. They just accomplished something called a memory master in their homeschool group. They can name all the presidents, the states and capitals. They can tell you the parts of the body. They do an awesome job. But, you know, I actually never had a class where I taught them how to fight with each other. <laughs> Did any of you do that? But somehow they are experts at it. They are masters at fighting with each other. Whether it's both of them want the TV or they want the last Tostito chip, whatever it is, they know how to fight with each other naturally, and I never taught them. I never sat them down and said, listen, when you're mad at your brother, you can raise your voice, you can yell, 
You can get physical. I never taught him any of that. Likewise, no one probably taught you how to have road rage on I-4. <laughs> there was no class on that. No one sat you down and said, when someone cuts you off, make sure your blood pressure goes up, make sure you raise your voice, here's the gesture. No, no, no one did that. No one taught us how to do those things. That's because they come naturally out of our hearts. And there's no greater place to see the depravity of man than the grocery store. How many know what I'm talking about? Thank you, Ms. Hope. Thank you. Now listen, I do the grocery shopping in my family. And when I go to the grocery store, I get the eye of the tiger in that place. I got my list. I know exactly where I'm going. I play Tetris with the shopping cart, heavy items on bottom. You stack the lighter ones on top. I know where the unsweetened organic coconut milk is in the ethnic aisle. I know which things to get in the dairy section. I know it all. I am an expert at the grocery store. But the problem is when you go in the grocery store, everyone is oblivious to what's going on around them. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You go to the freezer section, and Sally has the door open, fogging up all the windows. She's reading every label on every ice cream. And all you need is that one item right there, but she will not move. And then you know when you're going, you only got a few items. You go to the express lane, and Johnny's over there, and you got to tell him, it's not 10 items or more. It's 10 items or less. I need you to go somewhere else. I'm preaching to somebody today. But here's what I do. This is, this is the worst I get. This is how mad I get. You go down that aisle, and you got two people going opposite directions, blocking the whole aisle. They're both reading labels on either side. And so this is what I do. This is how aggressive I get. I'll go up to there. I'll stand, and I'll stare at him, and I do one of these. <clears throat> I stare him down. Nobody moves. I do a little louder. <clears throat> and hopefully they part ways. I give my life to Jesus every time I leave Publix, I'll be honest. I rededicate my life. But the issue is everyone in that grocery store is so focused on what they want and what they need, they're oblivious to people around them. And so they don't see those other people. But you know, the problem is me too. Because I am so focused on what I'm doing, I don't see them either. Honestly, I'm not really open to whether or not God is trying to tell me to help this person. Maybe that lady reading the labels can't see it anymore. Maybe she needs help. Maybe someone in the store is hurting, and I'm here for a reason. So we're both to blame. But anyway, that's my grocery shop story. Thank you. Everybody give Miss Hope a hand. Thank you, Miss Hope. Don't tell on me later, okay? I ask forgiveness. So we hurt people naturally. It's our natural inclination. So the latter part then is, how do we heal? How can we move past naturally hurting others, and how do we begin to heal? And to start this lesson, I need to give some cultural background. I'm going to give a brief history lesson. I didn't love history in school, but I love it now because we can learn so much from the past. And so I want to teach you about an event that happened way back in time, 700 years before Christ. So think back, 700 BC, the Israelites are being sent into exile away from their home. And so the Israelites are being exiled. They're the purple lines and the green lines. They're being exiled to Babylon or other places. And so they left their home country of Israel. And then the Assyrians and Babylons, pagans, people who didn't follow God, they came back into Israel during this time. And what's interesting is during these 70 years where the Jews were in exile, 
there were still some Jews left here in Israel. And the Assyrians and the Babylonians who came back to Israel during that time intermarried, and then they became a mixed race. They were half Jewish, half Assyrian or Babylonian, and that is what we call the Samaritans. Those Jews who were left behind, who intermarried, those were known as Samaritans. Now, when the exile ended and the Jews came back from Babylon and Assyria back to Israel, they found these people, half Jewish, half pagan, they considered them, and they immediately pushed them aside. They hated them. They disagreed with everything they stood for. Even though the Samaritans considered themselves Jewish, even though they practiced everything in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Jews that came back said, you're not purely Jewish, so we're going to push you aside. If you ever wondered whether the Bible addresses racial tensions, this is a prime example. And as we read this story, I want you to keep that in mind. So fast forward to the time of Jesus, the first century. I'm going to show you this next map. Even 700 years later, there are still tensions between the Samaritans and the Jews. So much so that when Jews need to go to Jerusalem, up north to the Sea of Galilee, or vice versa, they would literally take this gray arrow route around Samaria. They would add a day or two to their entire journey because they wanted to avoid the Samaritans. There's a whole message here on who might you be avoiding in your life, but we're not going there today. So Jews, even in Jesus' time, Jesus is on the earth, he's teaching. At this time, Jews are still doing everything they can to avoid Samaria because they do not like the Samaritans. What's amazing is that the Samaritans are actually still alive today. On my first trip to Israel, I actually got to visit Samaria, and this is the town where they live. It's on Mount Gerizim in Israel. There's less than 1,000 Samaritans still in existence today, and they all live here in this one town. And they only marry within each other, and it's only Samaritans in this town. And they still worship just like the Old Testament said. This next picture shows them worshiping and they worship with this amazing scroll. It is a handwritten copy of the first five books of the Old Testament, and it's from 700 years ago. It dates back to about 1300 AD, and they worship from this, and they observe all the practices that Orthodox Jews would observe. But still, in Jesus' time, the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. So what happens when Jesus comes on the scene? How does Jesus treat the Samaritans? And now for this, I want you all to go to John chapter 4, because I believe this story has so much in it. John chapter 4 is the story of the woman at the well. John chapter 4, starting with verse 3, it says this, Jesus left Judea and went again to Galilee, taking that route north, and he had to travel through Samaria. I wonder, did he really have to, or did he choose to? Or was there a purpose for traveling through Samaria? And again, just in that little phrase, we don't realize this was unique. Jesus traveled through Samaria unlike any other Jewish person during this time. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well and it was about six in the evening. And then a woman of Samaria, a Samaritan woman, came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her. 
for his disciples had gone into town to buy food. Watch what she says. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So not only did Jesus choose not to avoid Samaria, he went directly through it. And then while he's sitting at a well, a Samaritan woman, someone who the Jews would never associate with, never talk to, comes up to Jesus, and he breaks the barrier and says, can you give me a drink? And an amazing conversation ensues where Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, shares the gospel with this people that the Jews had overlooked. Jesus said, here you draw water from a well, but I can give you living water. And that is me, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's amazing is this well where the story takes place still exists today. And when I was in Samaria, you can go to a church, you go underneath the church, and this right here is Jacob's well. It is believed this is the well where Jesus met with a Samaritan woman and had this conversation. And so Jesus tells the woman, I am the living water. Come to me and you will be saved. And watch what happens. Later in John chapter 4, starting in verse 39, now many Samaritans from that town believed in him, Jesus, because of what the woman said. When she testified, he told me everything I ever did. And therefore, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And watch this. He stayed there two extra days. So not only did Jesus not avoid Samaria, he went directly through it. Not only did he speak to a Samaritan woman who also admitted to adultery, not only did he offer the Samaritan woman eternal life, but then he stays two extra days in this place that every other Jewish person avoided and stays for two days and speaks to an entire town of Samaritans. Isn't it incredible how this woman from a race looked down on by the Jews could turn her life around and bring an entire town to Jesus. You see, it was that one interaction that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman that led her to go back to her town, tell them about Jesus, and the entire town comes to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? But this is not the last time Samaria is mentioned by Jesus. Even in the Great Commission, before Jesus ascends into heaven, he makes this special mention of Samaria. Acts 1.8, it says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It was as if Jesus was making special mention to his disciples. I know you're naturally going to go to Judea, and you're naturally going to go down to Jerusalem, but I'm telling you, also go to Samaria. Also go to that place that you have avoided. So with all that context, all this history between the Samaritans and the Jews, now we come to this parable from Jesus. Turn with me one more time to one last scripture, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And keep everything we just spoke about in mind. I love hearing the physical pages turning of the Bibles. So cool. You can't hear a scroll, you know what I mean? You could, you could be turning as hard as you can in that Bible app, but no one's going to hear it. <laughs> Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 25. Jesus is teaching in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And it says this, Then an expert in the law, a Jewish leader, 
stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? So Jesus asked him, How do you read it? And so the Jewish leader answers, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the religious leader asks Jesus, So who is my neighbor? Who are you saying I should love them as much as I love myself? So Jesus took up the question and told this story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest, a Jewish priest, mind you, in this story, happened to be going down the road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, also a Jewish priest, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan. Do you see what Jesus just did? Jesus is addressing a group of religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders, the same people who avoided Samaria literally for centuries, and is now telling a story about how you can inherit eternal life, how you can love your neighbor as yourself, and the example he gives is a Samaritan. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to the man, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The one who showed mercy to him. I think it's so interesting that the religious leader didn't say the Samaritan. He said, the one who showed mercy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Go and be like the Samaritan in this story. So how do we heal? We have to be like the Samaritan. Number one, we must see our neighbor and have compassion. We must see our neighbor and have compassion. You know, it's like when you're in that grocery store. You can be so oblivious to everyone around you. And so step one, if we are to be like the Samaritan that Jesus tells us to be like, we have to stop and see our neighbor. You know, so many communities in the world today, people don't know who their neighbors are, like their literal physical neighbors. And sometimes when we see other people and we see three Land Rovers in the driveway, we think that person doesn't need anything. But you know, someone who is hurting, it might be different than how you're hurting. Just because they might have money or affluence does not mean that they are hurting deeply. They might be hurting individually. They might be hurting in their family. Just because someone looks like they have it all put together, their Instagram highlight reel looks amazing. They go out every weekend. They might still be deeply hurting. And so we must see our neighbor and have compassion, like the Samaritan. We cannot pass by like the first two in the story. We must see our neighbor and have compassion. Number two, we must sacrifice. Sacrifice is a bad word in today's culture. We're taught that we should gain things and earn things and accomplish things, and that sacrificial anything is looked down upon. 
But the good Samaritan, not only did he stop, not only did he see a man who was hurting, and not only did he take action to bring him to an inn, he sacrificed something. The Samaritan gave his own money, gave his time, gave his effort to help this hurting person heal. And when we are trying to help someone heal, it takes sacrifice. It might be sacrificing money. It might be sacrificing time or emotional energy. Maybe we need to lay down our own pride. Maybe the sacrifice is forgiving someone even though they don't ask for it. Whatever it is, the healing process takes sacrifice. In a world where self-preservation and self-success is glorified, we must remember the message of Jesus is sacrificial. We must sacrifice. And number three, we need to be invested. We need to be invested when we are trying to help someone through the healing process. You see, the Samaritan, not only did he bring the man to an inn, not only did he pay for his stay, but the Samaritan said, I'll be back. I'm going to come back in several days and repay anything that was spent. He didn't just drop the guy off and leave. The Samaritan was invested. You know, our culture today really specializes in hashtag activism, where a celebrity or some popular person will say something or say, we need to get behind this or get behind that, and there'll be a flurry of activity for a month or so, and then it goes away. We're not called to do that. As Christians, we are called to be self-sacrificial and invested in people. God has given us his gift of love, and that is the love we are to show others with patience, with sacrifice, with time. We need to be invested. And finally, number four, we need the right motivation. We need the right motivation when we are invested in the healing process. In the story that Jesus told, the Samaritan did not act because he would receive some recognition or accolades or awards. Again, our culture is so antithetical to this. It's telling you do this so you can become popular or gain followers or do this because it is socially praised. But the message of Jesus and of the Samaritan is the right motivation, doing it because God calls us to do it and no reason more. No accolades, no praise, only from Jesus. You know, when Jesus spoke this verse, it was revolutionary at the time. Matthew 5, 43, Jesus said, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. As I was searching for a story about healing and compassion, I came across a story of Amy Carmichael. This is a picture of her here. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India. She was originally from Ireland, and she was called to be a missionary in India, and she was there for 55 years. 55 years she spent in India. She opened a safe house called Donavur Fellowship, and she rescued children from being trafficked in the Hindu temples. In her lifetime, she rescued over 1,000 children from trafficking. That's an incredible story. Today, her Donavur Fellowship continues to care for children rescued from dangerous situations. Their campus has 400 acres with 16 nurseries and a hospital. In 1948, three years before she died, temple prostitution was outlawed in India. It was because of Amy's perseverance and tireless labor, in spite of great opposition, 
that it eventually led to laws regarding the prevention of child abuse to pass in India. Amen. My favorite part of Amy Carmichael's story, when she was a child and when she was an adult, she had brown eyes. And her younger sibling had blue eyes. And she always wanted blue eyes. She said she would pinch her younger sibling to see his blue eyes if she wanted them so bad. And she would pray every day to God, God, can you make my eyes blue? And after he didn't answer that prayer for a while, she asked her mom, why doesn't God answer my prayer? Why doesn't he make my eyes blue? Mom said, I don't know. Sometimes God says no, and we don't understand why. Later in life, Amy Carmichael realized that if she had had blue eyes, she would not have been given access to the Hindu temples where she saved hundreds and hundreds of children. It was only because of her brown eyes that culturally she was able to go and rescue those children from trafficking. Amen. Amy Carmichael, for the last 20 years of her life, was bedridden from an injury, but she still wrote every day songs, poems. And she said this, when I consider the cross of Christ, how can anything I do be called sacrifice? When I consider the cross of Christ, how can anything I do be called sacrifice? One final verse, I believe this promise from the Old Testament is so applicable today. 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Heal their land. How do we heal? We have to stop and see those who are hurting. We have to be invested in the healing process and realize it will take sacrifice and do it with the right motivation. And so now I'm going to pray a bold prayer for those who want it. At the beginning of the message, I said, I hope God reveals someone to you in your life. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a friend, and that God would tell you, I need you to help that person. That person is hurting, and I need you to be in the healing process. Or maybe you're saying to God, I want to be a Samaritan to someone in my life. If that applies to either of you, would you be bold and just raise your hand? I believe there'll be hands all over this place. You're saying, I know someone that I need help. They are hurting. I know someone. Keep those hands up just for a second. Or maybe you're saying, God, help me to be a Samaritan. Give me an opportunity to help someone who is hurting. Just lift your hand just for a moment. Heavenly Father, we pray for everyone at every campus, South Shore, Plant City, and online who are saying, I want to be like that Samaritan. I want to help someone who is hurting. God, I pray you give us all the courage to move, even this week, maybe even today, it's to reach out to someone and say, how are you really doing? Give us that courage. Give us the love of Christ that we can share with those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. And now there's another group of you. Those of you who would say, I want to know this Jesus. I believe in him. I need to lay down my life and give it to him. So much overwhelming evidence says that Jesus Christ truly existed 2,000 years ago, that he truly died on a cross, and all the evidence points to the fact that he rose from the dead. And that miraculous work is for you today, that your sins could be forgiven and that you could spend eternity with him. And so we don't want a moment like this to go by without saying you can give your life to Christ right now. And to do that, we're going to just pray a simple prayer all together. 
And if you would bow your head and close your eyes across all our campuses, and everyone's going to pray this prayer together so you're not alone, but if that's you, I want you to pray it to Jesus right now. Say, Dear Jesus, forgive me. I give you my life. Teach me to follow you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed that message, How Do We Heal? Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash crossingchurch. And you can download our app for all the latest events, news, and updates. Thanks for joining us, and we can't wait to worship with you next weekend.